Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where your host, Alison K. Summers, is searching the globe to introduce you to cutting-edge thinkers and entrepreneurs whose stories will inspire you to innovate your own business life. Having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, Alison is taking her own experiences to help today's CEOs and professionals meet the ever-changing demands of the future of work. Now, here's your host, Alison K. Summers. It is great to be with everybody today. Thank you for joining us at Disruptive CEO Nation. We are going to take a hop over to Seattle today. And you know, when we talk, we like to interview company founders and hear how they've scaled up their business. But we also like to people who just have years of knowledge and experience and things to share with you. So today, we have a guest who's worked in more than 25 countries on four different continents, helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership, and honestly has had very many um, clients that have been in the startup world or scale-up world. He is a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes, and he's also been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, and anywhere where you can find CEOs and thought leaders hanging out. Um, so we are so grateful to have on the show, Ron Curry. Ron, welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. How are you? So, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, we are just enamored to hear what great things you have to share with us today. I'm looking forward to a great chat. So you have had a really incredible business journey first. And so before we get started to the meat of the content, we want to get to know you, Ron, and hear, hear how you got to be where you're at today and the good things that you're putting into the world today. Um, so I, is it, I'm always fascinated to tell people the story of starting our firm, Navalink, which is now 15 years old, because um, whenever I talk to entrepreneurs and founders, they often remind me, well, you are one too. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Because we never set out to be. Like many entrepreneurs, we're, we were the accidental founders. We worked in a very wonderful consulting firm in New York City that, that we're, we practice our craft. So you know, as organizational psychologists, we love our craft. We love the process of, of crafting transformational journeys that truly create you know, amazing business results. Um, when that firm got acquired by a much larger firm, it stopped being fun. It became more about feeding the dinosaur and feeding the machine and, and less about the craft. And we thought, well, we could go do this on our own. We don't need, we know what we're doing now. We can sell work. We have CEOs and executives who want to work with us. We don't need the machine. We can go do this ourselves. So a few of us, three of us, decided we would exit the firm and go begin our own practice. Now, interestingly, Allison, we never said the words, let's go start a firm. We said, let's go practice together because we love each other and we love the work and that makes a big impact. And quickly we realized, hey, you know what? If we're going to do larger transformational engagements in more complex global settings, we're going to need some help. We should probably get more people. Again, we never said, let's go grow a firm. We just said, let's go find people. Mm -hmm. And maybe about six or seven years in, we finally said, hey, I think we have a firm. We should probably run it. <laughs> we should probably actually pretend that we actually have management systems and or, or we try and look like we're beyond a virtual practice of friends 
a real community of people and maybe we should have a brand and maybe we should like have a website and we had a website but, but the point was we were very accidental backwards entrepreneurs we didn't set out to build this wonderful firm uh that does great work in the world um we just love what we do um and and by, just to be clear i would never recommend someone do that that way <laughs> i would say if you're going to start a firm start it on purpose um if you're going to grow a firm grow it on purpose it's a much easier it doesn't make it less difficult but it certainly makes it less haphazard um so doing great work in the world loving what we do um i think the biggest change is that when we began 15 years ago, people doing the kind of work we did in the world were not, they were there, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't an exhaustively um, crowded landscape. 15 years later, it, it's wall-to-wall -wall flesh. It, the, 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 the literally hundreds of thousands of practitioners doing organizational work, leadership work, coaching work, Every, everybody and their mother went to JCPenney's and got a coaching certification now. Um, and so, so differentiate, you know, we, and the problem of course is in any competitive landscape, and this is true for all of your listeners, you don't get extra credit for the history. Just because you have more experience and more depth than some of the folks that just showed up on the playing field doesn't mean you get treated differently than them. You get, you, it's the same comparative set to the naked eye. So it's been a whole new set of muscles now to learn how to compete and show up and do good work in the world to use your good words and set ourselves apart from the gazillions of other people now doing this work. Well, and uh, I think people that work in the service industry and a lot of our listeners, you know, they might have products or they might sell technology, but when you are a company founder in the service industry space, I, I think it is different because your business is the people that you have on staff, or as you said, your practitioners that are, are with you. And I think, it's very competitive. And, and so I just want to take a, a quick sidestep here, which we didn't plan. And can we just talk a little bit about, you know, I know you're in a relationship business, but yet I'm sure you still have to market and, and still be feeding your pipeline. Um, yes, I, I hesitate because it's like, a, I, I dare say, I'm not sure I want to. So, you know, today, um, and this is true for even even your listeners who are selling a product or making something out of their garage or just bought their first warehouse space. You're still selling ideas, you know, software as service, SAS businesses. You, today, we work in an economy where who we are is so much more intrinsically tied to what we do than ever before. Trying to create some distance between what the, uh, the solution we represent, the support we represent, the relationship we represent from who we are as human beings is almost impossible today, mm -hmm. which creates its own set of unhealthy, right, boundary challenges. But how do you get those ideas recognized in the world? How do you get someone who you'd want to serve, a client or a customer you'd want to work with, to go, oh, look how they talk about that problem. That's how I think about it. They could probably help me. When sitting alongside your idea are about 400,000 other ideas on the same topic or similar topics, um, using similar language, maybe treating it very diff somewhat differently, and get someone from among that sea of information to go, I think I'll call. Not, not an easy challenge. It is a relentless, digitally technical, scientific, artistic, um, uh, never-ending process of producing and sharing ideas and solutions and thoughts to grow an audience, to grow 
recognition and to and to accept the fact that if you haven't started that journey yet, you it's all. I mean, I began Navel. We began our journey only five years ago to get serious about that part of our work. Mm-hmm. And even when we started it, I would say we were. I mean, I had to be the prophet of doing my own land. Going, guys, it's supply and demand, not just supply. Um, and we had such a huge referral network and such a huge mass of CEOs and executives calling us or changing companies and bringing us with them that we didn't really have to work that hard at it. We did some, we, I would speak at conferences and did some writing, but it wasn't at all, to use the word marketing would have been a really a, an overstretch. Well, um, and I think that's that's actually good news for our listeners, right? Because, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, how do we make business basics understandable. Because at the end of the day, when companies fail or when companies have problems, you know, it always comes down to some core business basics. So, um, so let's kind of shift there and and talk for um, people who are in that more startup mode or scale up mode. What are some of those words of wisdom you have to them about that core business that they should keep their eye on? You know, Allison, whenever I walk into uh, a company that's, you know, just either finished its Series A funding or it's, it's in the earlier days of maturation, founder's still there, the founder's team is still there, um, and, and, they're, and they're trying to scale. Um, and often you find the classic, they grew but they didn't scale. You find the $30 million company trapped in the body of a $5 million organization, or you find the $100 million company trapped in the body of a $30 million organization. It's like the teenage boy in his dad's suit. They haven't actually grown into themselves yet. Mm-hmm. And the, the symptoms are so foreseeable um, and yet founders struggle with them. And so there are three, three almost inevitable things I know I'm going to find when I go. One is the question of identity. So whenever I ask a founder, so tell me your strategy. I get all the counterfeits. I get the mission, vision, values. I get the product quota. I get Costco called and here's the order. That's the strategy. I get some counterfeit reason for being. And when I ask them, that's all very interesting, but tell me why would somebody pick you over the person up the street doing what you're doing? The accounting firm, the law firm, the software business, the widget business, whatever you happen to be doing, tell me why. And then I get the Uber, well, where the Uber of? I get the, you know, the, the unique whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me who knows that and tell me who knows it well enough to choose you over somebody else. Tell me why you have a right to win in that space. They can never answer the question. And a lot of times they get a little bit defensive and they'll say, well, that's, that strategy stuff is for big companies. We're not there yet. To which I tell every founder that is such a dangerous myth. Strategy is more important now because right now, you, when, I, when, when you think about saying the word no to an opportunity, you, you fibrillate, you shake. And yet, Setting boundaries now and setting the swim lanes you want to win in long term is so critical. If you can't tell me what clients you're saying no to, you have no identity. You're just another one of them out there. So the first of all thing is what are the two or three differentiators you're going to go, go deep on? What are the three, two or three things that you want customers to choose you over other people? And what are the capabilities you're going to invest in to make those differentiators true? And that you should be obsessed with that. Service, in a, you know, creativity, responsiveness, technology reliability, security. It could be a number, any number of things, but you can't have them all. You can't compete on 20 things. And if you can't figure out what the, the, 
the consumers or customers that you want to serve want from you, you're chasing dollars, which means you're chasing growth, but not scalability. So first question is one of clarify who you are in the world and really get articulate and sharp about that. The second one is, is scalability. So whenever I look at the, so we just got our series B funding, we just hired a hundred people. Yay. And I'm like, great. What are they all doing? Bodies are coming in the door and it's, it's the classic startup mayhem and the entrepreneurs are thinking, Oh, look, I love all that energy. And I have to say, actually, so they don't, they're going crazy and they're stressed. That's well, you not know, Ron, I don't think people understand. I mean, just, I mean, just gonna say the, the normal person and everything that they might teach you if you go the traditional route of an MBA. And of course we like the other route. We like the scrappy route of learning as you do. And I'm learning from others, but very few people really understand. And I've had this experience once in my life where I was part of a new, like a new facility location where we scaled up 90 people in nine months, um, which I, I liken it to be like a Marine on the front line of war, right? You go in, you, nobody can live with that pace of right. scaling up that hard and that fast and even dream of building a cohesive team. And, and let, me, let me pause on that word, cohesive. Cohesion is not a byproduct of we all get along well. Cohesion only happens by design. And, but when you're the entrepreneur, you're exempt from the cohesion, right? And so you, you think the body showing up in the door is a sign of success. You think the fact that the, the, the PE firm or the venture capital firm wrote you a check for $20 million is a sign of you being rewarded. It's none of those things. <laughs> it's just the, the luck of the draw. And, and if those 100 people you're hiring now go out the door in as much time as it took to find them, that's failure. So... If you have done your work to, to sort of set the, the boundaries around your identity, the next question is, what's the work? Most entrepreneurs treat all work as equal or whoever on their team is screaming the loudest for the resources. Um, so if um, you know what truly sets you apart, there's most founders don't realize you have three types of work in your organization, no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. you have competitive work, you have competitive enabling work, and you have necessary work. Your competitive work is your secret sauce. It is the work that you do that if you invest a dollar in that work, five hours comes in the door. It is the work that directly sets you apart and, and is the manifestation of those differentiators we talked about earlier. It's about 15% of the activities in your organization. That's it. The next is competitive enabling work. So this is the work, the processes, the repeatability that so directly supports your competitive work. So if, if for example, you, a competitive differentiator for you is um, market analytics. You really know consumers well. Um, your data analysis process, your data warehousing is probably a competitive enabling work. Also about 15, maybe 20% of your work. The rest of your work, 50 to 60% of it is necessary. It keeps the lights on, it keeps you out of jail, it keeps you in compliance. Um, you don't get ma make any more money for doing it better than anybody else. You can do it on parity. I like well, how you most, say it keeps you out of jail. I've been on a mission lately about governance. <laughs> we'll get to that part. So the problem is when you mix all that work together into that big sea of people, 
we all know what happens when you mix necessary work with competitive work. It dilutes the, you know, the, the, the competitive work is longer term. It never gets done because the necessary work feels so good to do. It's so near term. It's like five o'clock today is the deadline. And so your competitive and comp competitive and other work have to be organized for maximum impact. Your best talent, your best tools, your best technologies. Your necessary work has to be organized for maximum efficiency. Lowest cost, most efficient, most repeatable processes is where all your cost is. But if you haven't separated out your work, you're just going to start throwing bodies at everything. And to your, to your wonderful word before, there's no cohesion anymore. Now you have your fragment in the organization. Fragmentation is a natural part of growth, but it doesn't have to be fragmented. And cohesion happens when you create cultures and governance structures that allow decision and information to move appropriately across those, that work and keeps your competitive work separate and protected from the necessary work. Most entrepreneurs are just throwing bodies and trying to just trying to get the orders out the door and just trying to keep up with the you know, complaint tickets and orders and set out the door and figure out why the car manufacturer in China isn't getting products to the door and why they suddenly raised their prices and, or why their top line and bottom line are matching, why there's no, there's no margin anymore. But if you don't stop uh, as a founder and, and stop working in the business long enough to work on the business and work on the organization, you're going to stay in the mayhem and actually going to perpetuate it. Hey Ron, do you see that, um, and, I, and I think there's been a shift, but you know, it seemed like in the past that there was such a rush to get, to get money. Like I've got this great idea, I'm founding this company, now I need to go find investors and need to find money. And I'm actually speaking more to um, some founders, and it just could be the string of conversations I'm having lately, where they're being very judicious and waiting before they're going and looking for that money. And they seem to be able to achieve this scale up a little bit better. Do you have any uh, thoughts you know, on the, those so strategies? The, 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 fine, the fine line, Allison, between bootstrapping and using other people's capital is always a difficult line to walk. Um, I do think capital is drying up. I mean, there was a, you know, up until about two months ago, there was a huge, continued to be a huge surplus of capital and access to it wasn't that hard. Um, PE companies and venture capital companies get a little bit more judicious, a little more thoughtful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole eight out of 10 fail thing is no longer acceptable, right? Why, why are your bets so bad? Sure, there's always risk, but you should be able to spot a winning team, a winning leader and a winning idea a little better than eight, you know, two out of 10. So I do, I do think it's smarter. I think the problem when uh, entrepreneurs go after capital too prematurely, the, the investors begin shaping the idea and shaping the, towards some idea they have or, or part of the portfolio they're trying to build and departing from the vision of the entrepreneur. So I do think it's important that you know you're going after capital at the time you know you, what you need it for. But many entrepreneurs, having not vetted their idea, having not done good research, having not done good prototyping, or don't really have good proof of concept, thinking that if they have capital, it'll buy them some time. But having somebody else's capital actually tends to shorten your time because they're, the impatience of the investors to, for a return has you making very bad decisions, which is what makes, brings us to the third and part of my three-legged stool here for entrepreneurs, which is leadership. So many entrepreneurs have not prepared themselves to lead. They hire their, they, they hire their friends. They, their worst nightmare when the, the next round of funders come in 
they do the classic layer over. Yeah, your friends are nice, but they can't lead. I'm going to bring in professional managers underneath mm-hmm. you, or I'm going to throw you out and bring in a new CEO. Um, and the entrepreneurs get resistant, they get defensive, they get angry, they have to fire their friends because they didn't scale their friends. They didn't scale leadership. Um, and for, for many entrepreneurs, um, either they came out of a big company, which means that leadership has to completely overhaul because they're not prepared to lead in a small environment, or they've never led anything, in which case they have to learn to lead in the first place. So strategy, organization, and leadership are the three things that entrepreneurs from the outset of their ideas have to work on all the time. They have to step away from working in it and work on it and make sure people are prepared to lead beyond themselves, that they're prepared to scale, especially the founderism, because you've seen this, I'm sure, a lot, Allison, when you're Mm -hmm. a founder, your identity is so intrinsically linked to your idea, you can't separate yourself from it. And so you become this big shadow over your own creation. And so people, you either hire very dependent people who are like needy to suck up to you, in which case they can't lead themselves and you, your ego is being gorged on all this admiration you're getting, or you're threatened by anybody that has an idea different than yours because it contradicts your identity. Of course, you know what happens when you get to, you get some luck in the marketplace, you get to 50, $60 million and it is all reliant on you. And now your ability to separate yourself from it, to be able to allow it to grow and do what it's meant to do beyond you is almost impossible because it's such a psychological assault to your identity. And you've trained people to be completely dependent on you uh, for all the decisions. So there's no governance in place. Now all governance roads lead to me. And so if you don't see that happening at the three, five, seven, early days of $8 million in early growth, um, that you're not building in leadership and structures to allow decision-making and leadership to grow beyond you, you're in trouble already. Much less when you get to that size where now you're not really a startup anymore. Now it's time to grow up and you can't. Yeah, no, Ron, and that's why we talk um, here on, on, on this podcast. We, I really do enjoy speaking to people at both ends of the scale. Like, like you said, if you just talk to people who are in their first couple of years or who are in a certain age demographic, or it, it gives you blind spots. And we like to talk to people from all over the world. And I, I don't know if you see any difference in the way other people um, outside of the U.S., are founding and scaling their business um, or any kind of other wisdom you would just share? Because this is such a good, good meaty topic. We're getting close to our, our time already. Um, and I'd love to speak with you again another day because I can think of 10 other questions I want to ask you. Um, but do you see any global diversity on how people are approaching their startup lives? So I think some of the funding sources in other countries around the world are, are from more compassionate sources. I think uh, leaders are being more developed entrepreneurially and not just academics, but they're being mentored by better entrepreneurs. And so I see a more compassionate capitalism in other parts of the world than I do here in the U.S. Um, I also think that because they're just less of them, right? We have probably, we're probably over-serviced on people who think they want to go start a company. Yes. When, you know, and I think you probably have had many episodes where you told people it's not for everybody. Just because you don't want to work for the man anymore at the big company doesn't mean you should start your own. Um, so here we, the American dream says anybody can be an entrepreneur. I don't think it's true. I don't think anybody can. And I, I, I sort of don't think even if you can, doesn't always mean you should. Um, so I think people are being more thoughtful and choice in one of the parts of the world where access to capital is a little bit more limited. 
Um, you have to vet your ideas and you have to be more self-sufficient. It doesn't come easy for other folks in other parts of the world. Yeah, I you know, think- I, was, I was just going to say, Ron, the thing that I see um, when I talk to people around the world is the sacrifice level is different. Um, I talked to these wonderful, wonderful gentlemen in Estonia, um, and the amount of sacrifice they were willing to go to to get their company up off the ground, where the four of them live in one apartment and they sell all their hobby, their sports hobbies and their cars, um, but now they have a company that works. And yeah, so um, it's interesting, compassionate capitalism, I like that phrase. I think the the dig deep empathy that people you're talking about they had to dig deep. We don't. Um, you have that here in the U.S. to a much, to a far lesser degree. Um, and I think if you're not willing to sell out for your idea, and not that I think everybody should sleep on couches and not eat any mm-hmm. ramen, but you have to know you'd be willing to that you care enough about the idea, care enough about the impact you want to have in the world. I think I also think people in other parts of the world, like Eastern Europe, are more socially conscious. They recognize that there's a bigger story and they do care about those reasons. I think here you have to go into the social entrepreneurial realm to find those people. Um, and while I mean, thank goodness for the B Corp movement where people are actually more, more intentionally pursuing B Corp status uh, from, the, from, the, from the inception of their companies, which is a much easier journey than to do it when you're long and established. Um, but were it not for those efforts, I don't know that you'd see the kind of sacrifice. And, and to be really obnoxiously judgmental, you go to Silicon Valley and there's just way too much money. There's way too much capital there. And it's cutthroat and it's doggy dog and it's, it's just kind of gross um, <laughs> the, way, the way companies are invested and begun, begun there. Um, I think capital is moving away from there to other parts of the country. Chicago is a great startup, especially for, for women. Chicago is a great place mm-hmm. for women. Austin, even New York, um, because what's happened in Silicon Valley, and now it's all coming out in all kinds of exposés, all the seventh grade nerds that didn't get beat up enough are now got all the money. It's really kind of sad to see how friendships and lives and livelihoods are being destroyed because there's just way too much money and not enough willingness to sacrifice and not enough humility. The four guys in that apartment in Estonia you mentioned before, there's a level of humility there uh, and intellectual curiosity that will go, take them much further than any of the brainiacs from Stanford and Silicon Valley ever will. Yeah, and their mission was about, um, was about uh, ultimately they're metal fabricators, but their mission was about um, jobs. It was cutting the middleman. It was doing, cutting waste, but, but getting the job done more efficiently and effectively and keeping kind of giving opportunity, equal opportunity to everybody that could fabricate. So there's a different twist. Listen, Ron, again, I'd love to have you back as a guest again, and we can, we can uh, dive in and deeper on these pieces. And what I recommend for my audience is, um, you know, Ron is also an author of many books, so you can take a look and check out his books. But Ron, share with everybody, um, how they can connect with you, how they can find out more if they want to talk to you direct. Yeah, so come visit us. We're at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We've got some great videos. We've got a quarterly magazine that's free. We've got all kinds of white papers and articles on topics of teams and organizations and strategy and scaling. Uh, and we have a free ebook. So if you're beginning with some kind of a transformational growth journey, come, come to Navalent.com slash transformation. We have a free ebook for you. 
that gives you our playbook on how we help transform organizations. Twitter at Ron Carucci and also on LinkedIn. So please do stay in touch. Thank you, Ron. And, and to our listeners, we're in this together as you are going on your founder's journey. And um, separate from the, the sad stuff Ron said at the end of the podcast episode, <laughs> the entrepreneur and founder community can be quite, quite strong and encouraging together. So, um, so thank you for listening. If Ron said something that you think will resonate or be important for somebody else to hear, please pass along the link to today's episode. If you know of a innovative, creative, disruptive company founder that we should speak to, send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. And until then, keep your eye on the future. Ron, thank you again. Allison, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.